Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Christina Stemble, to our show today. Christina is the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers, a national floral delivery company that offers high quality and beautiful arrangements. 11 years ago, Christina set out to transform the way we shop for flowers by providing fewer, better options. Today, her beloved brand, which started out of her tiny apartment using $49,000 in savings, has scaled to tens of millions of dollars in revenue without a single cent from investors. To this day, Farm Girl Flowers remains completely bootstrapped and is recognized for its signature whimsical and eco-conscious designs. We'll chat with Christina about what it was like to start a business with only a high school degree and how she overcame naysayers who didn't believe this small town girl from a farm in rural Indiana could create a wildly successful business. We also talk about the early days of Farm Girl Flowers and how she built it to be a multi-million dollar business with no network, no support, and very little money. We also talked to Christina on a variety of topics from how she dealt with rejection and getting more than a hundred no's from investors to how she saved the company from almost going out of business during COVID and how she thinks about joy and her mental health while growing her business. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thanks for having me, Asmin. I'm so excited to be here. I am super excited. I know this specific interview is going to be like a huge masterclass for resilience and grit. And there's so much to talk about. And we briefly chat about this before the interview, but like your life prior to COVID and after COVID, I mean, you have gone through so much and you are incredibly inspiring. So I am super excited and also a big fan of the company even from years ago. So I'm personally really excited that you're here and I can't wait to jump into it. So I actually want to start with your upbringing. You know, you grew up in a corn and soybean farm in Indiana, and you've often talked about how your aspirations and what you really knew was possible was very different than the women and where you are today. And there was a big I guess, emphasis on gender roles growing up. So can you talk to me more about your childhood and what life was like growing up? Yeah, absolutely. My parents, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about them because they're just the most, they're lovely, wonderful people. And they did the best they could with what they had available to them. And what that was though, is a very gender rolled evangelical Christian experience. So I heard the phrase a few years ago, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And that resonated so much with me because I never saw a woman doing things differently. You know, I saw a lot of women at home. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that that's not hard work. I just didn't see any women in in powerful business positions. And so I never thought that that was an opportunity for me. I just, you know, knew that I didn't want to do the traditional path that I'd seen. And that was told to me to get married, have children, live here in rural Indiana. That just wasn't for me, but I had no idea what I was going to do then. So I like to talk to as many women as possible now, especially in other areas. People think I'm crazy on the coasts because it's just not normal. You know, they're like, what year were you born? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, um, yeah. But 
you know, even college just wasn't an opportunity for me and my sister, but it was for my brother. And that was just, you know, if you don't have a lot of means, you put it into the means that you think are going to go the furthest. And it's not with female children, unfortunately, in farm type communities. And so I want to do whatever I can to change that thinking. And I think at least within my family, I have. And so hopefully it can spread further than that. Ugh, I, I'm so passionate about this and why I started this podcast, because similar to you, you know, I never I grew up in the world of banking and finance and all my role models were men. I was like, well, I want to start a business and do things differently. And it wasn't until I used to throw these dinners with a friend of mine where I'd meet other amazing women. I'm like, wow, they're just like me. They're running these amazing businesses. And that's really when the light bulb went off. So just having these types of conversations and you sharing your story is so important for other women to realize that can be me. There's nothing that makes me different versus Christina. So Thank you so much for being here and continuously sharing your story because I think it's really important. And you mentioned, you know, your parents supported your brother to go to college. They had different aspirations for your sister. You kind of left your hometown. You moved to San Francisco. So tell me more about what drove you there and what kind of jobs you were really doing at the time. Yeah. So without a college degree, you just go in at the bottom and work your way up. And I actually am so thankful for that. I'm a big proponent of other paths other than college. So that's another thing I'm very passionate about. You know, I think that we've pigeonholed, you know, one direction only, and we haven't really looked at, you know, not college isn't available to a lot of children. And it's also not the right choice for a lot of people as well. It used to be a big regret I had, you know, and I was embarrassed by it. And now I kind of wear it as a badge of honor. You don't have to go to college to do something in life. Those things are not, you know, synonymous with each other. It's just really all about intellectual curiosity and drive. From leaving the farm, I moved out two weeks after I graduated high school. I moved to New York City. There's a lot of cities in between San Francisco, but I always just worked. You know, my first job in New York was at a Starbucks. You know, I couldn't believe people paid $4 for a cup of coffee, you know, coming from a farm, you know, and then eventually made it out to San Francisco and I worked in hospitality. And that was just an industry where you could go in as a front desk agent and three months later be a manager if you just worked hard. So that's what I found to be my path to kind of middle management, I would say, which was really at the time, the highest I thought I could go. I thought, wow, I can make six figures managing a hotel. That's success to me, you know? And when I moved out to San Francisco, it was the first time I saw a different type of success. Like people were starting, everybody was starting businesses. It was in the first dot-com. It was back in 2000. And it was kind of at the end where a lot of them were going under, unfortunately, but you know, it was the first time that I was like, whoa, I don't have to work for someone else. I could work for myself. You know, if I'm going to work 80 hours a week, which is how I worked my way up so quickly was just working my tail off. But if I'm going to do that, why don't I do that for myself? And, you know, I saw people disrupting toothbrushes and you know, the market, yes. like everybody was just doing so many different creative things. And I thought, you know what, I could do that. So I just started carrying a notebook around with me everywhere. And every problem I would encounter, I would think about a solution to it. And it really got those muscles going for me. And I mean, I probably came up with 4,000 ideas before Farm Girl and would, you know, spend my Friday and Saturday nights just researching every industry. I probably know more tidbits about every industry out there than most people. If there was a Jeopardy for that, I'd probably win because I had the gamut of different industries. And it's interesting also, I think it's really important, especially for women to hear that they don't have to be the cliche story of, oh, you're so lucky you turned your hobby into a business. No, you can be intentional about wanting to be an entrepreneur and start a business. I knew nothing about flowers. I thought they were a waste of money. It's not the, you know, I grew up frolicking in my grandmother's garden that the magazines want to tell that story. 
that only happens with women. That doesn't seem to happen with men. I don't see it's like, well, you know, and by the way, every one of our competitors is 100% male owned. Everyone. It's just like the fashion industry or beauty. Oh my flowers gosh. The consumers a woman, but who's actually selling you the flowers are not women. And so it was the same as, as all of those industries where with me being the woman, they're like, oh, you know, you're so lucky you turned your hobby and you made it into a business. No, I intentionally came up with an idea. I researched the industry. I started just like any man would have and did. And we need to tell that story to women. It doesn't have to be that you love sewing. So you became a fashion designer, you know, that type yep. of thing. Yeah. And there's so much that I actually want to unpack in that. You know, there's so many aspects of business that you can fall in love with. It could be the building, it could be the hiring, it could be, you know, there's so many things. Passion could just mean a lot of different aspects. It doesn't have to be necessarily that you are loving the flower industry and you grew up thinking about that. So I think that's a really good point. And just one thing I want to circle back on, you mentioned, I would think this would be really tough, but you even talked about it was tough for you not to have a college degree. And it was somewhat of an insecurity. You're in San Francisco. You are surrounded by, you know, it's a bubble, right? People are starting businesses. Everyone's like a Stanford grad stereotypically. Was that somewhat of an insecurity for you at the time? And did that hold you back from thinking about ideas and starting a business? It didn't. That's a great question. It did not hold me back from starting a business. It is one of the factors on why I think I wasn't able to raise funding. I was asked a lot about education, which I found kind of humorous, you know, and I would like list all the famous entrepreneurs that don't have college degrees, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, like, you know, the list goes on and on. And I had a list of them. VCs would tell me, yeah, but would you have gotten into Harvard? You know, stuff like that, really like kind of snarky, like, and I'm like, I don't know. I didn't try, you know, (laughs) like, I don't know. But, you know, even if I didn't, numbers talk. And I do think they were focused on, you know, when they say that we invest in the entrepreneur, not in the business and all of that. I just... I find that to be the way that people keep the money, you know, people trust people that look like them. And so they give money to people that look like them, whether that be physically or their pedigree or however else, they're not giving opportunities to people that don't look like them when statistically speaking, and you look at their portfolios, maybe they should, you know, (laughs) because it's their, you know, portfolios, most of them don't look that great. So maybe they should try something else on for size. And so I do think that the the lack of a college degree, especially at a pedigree, you know, I don't know that it would have helped me if I had like from Indiana University South Bend or something yeah. like a, you know, I don't think that would have helped me anymore. But not having the Stanford degree that you talked about or Harvard or Yale or Princeton or one of the big ones, I think was a barrier to being able to uh, raise capital. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. 
That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Listening, and now let's get back to the show. You mentioned that you had this passion for building a scalable business, right? And you were training your muscle to think about different solutions. So tell me more about what those parameters were that you were looking for in a business and why Farm Girl Flowers was really the business you went all in on. Yeah, that's a really good question too. There's so many. So I actually think all of the years of carrying that idea notebook around and researching all of those industries really served me well. One of my biggest tips to especially female, you know, entrepreneurs that happen to be female is to just go for it. You know, there's so much fear that holds you back. But then there's also a good thing of like not jumping too quick because you get to learn a lot as you go along. And so all of those industries I explored, the research I did showed me my first ones would have failed miserably because I wasn't, you know, and even this one, I tell people don't start a flower company. I would <laughs> never do it again, ever. In a million years, I would not start a company with perishability ever because I didn't know that. But I knew that I wanted to check a few boxes from all of that research. And I guess the biggest one was I wanted it to actually do something different. You know, I just kept seeing all these businesses that would take someone, they just really are copycats. And I didn't want to be a copycat. I wanted to be something new and original. I wanted to not just take somebody else's idea and tweak it a tiny bit. I wanted to take an industry that hadn't been disrupted and then really go for it. Really like say like, why is this not working? Me as a consumer, why do I not want to purchase in this, this industry? And that's what I did with flowers. Now I know why it hadn't been disrupted you know, <laughs> since the mid 90s, because that's a really hard industry to make money in. 
But back then I didn't. So the biggest one was that. I also knew it would probably be creative. That's kind of my skill in life as much as I don't want that to be my skill in life. I wish that I could cure cancer. Or, you know, I was really great at math and science, but you know, I'm really good at making things pretty. So leaning into the creativity, I knew it was going to be something creative. That's what I enjoy in life. That's just the, the skill I was born with. So I knew it would be in the, the creative space. I wanted to do something good. You know, I wanted to have a mission behind it, which that mission has changed and shifted many times, but I've been very focused on always having a mission that does something good. So this one checked that box. And then another one of the biggest ones was it needed to be bootstrapped. So I knew that there was no way I was going to march down to Sand Hill Road and say like, hey guys, I know you don't know me. I know I've never done this before, but just trust me. I got this. Invest in me. I knew that wasn't going to be possible. I didn't have any idea it would be as challenging as it has been. To date, we're still bootstrapped. Now it's by choice, which is great. But Mm. for the first 10 years, it was not by choice. I tried three different times to raise capital, very unsuccessfully, 104 no's. I thought after I proved the concept I'd be able to, and the numbers would speak for themselves since I couldn't, my pedigree would not speak for us. So I knew it would need to be bootstrapped. Most of the ideas, 95% of the ideas I came up with needed a lot of capital, like millions of dollars of capital. And this was one that I had $49,000 in my bank account. I was like, I can do this for my dining room. And so that's why just out of necessity, I went with Farm Girl as the idea. Yeah. And tell me more about that. You had $49,000 in your savings. How did you really think about the runway that you had and really the business? Because it takes a lot of gut still to like leave that six-figure job, especially growing up in the way you did, right? Where financial security, I'm sure, is even more heightened. So tell me more about what it felt like to jump in and not have a job and really how you thought about that $49,000. I was really naive. <laughs> I was so naive. Good. <laughs> you know, I was like, maybe I should sell NFT or something for my first financial model. <laughs> it was like 16 lines or something. I was like, this is all I could come up with that I would need to spend money on, you know, flowers, labor, <laughs> marketing. Now it's like, I don't know how many... 100,000. Like, <laughs> this is fine. I don't know. It's a long one, you know? So I was really naive. I thought that, you know, I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money, but it was to live on the 49,000 and do farm on it. And there was a lot more expenses that I didn't know about. But one of the really big positives was, and, and not everybody is in a position to be able to do this. I understand that fully. I am someone who can live with very little because I have lived with very little. So I wasn't used to a fancy lifestyle. I lived in a one bedroom apartment, rent controlled apartment. Basically, I even had the mentality I could live in my car if I needed to. Like I'm very like, I'll just make things happen. I don't need fancy things. Like I, you know, stopped drinking coffee because it was more expensive than tea. And I would drink Lipton tea bags. I lived on ramen. Like I'm willing to do things like that, that a lot of people are more accustomed to a different lifestyle. And also I don't have anybody to, you know, I don't have any children. I don't have anybody I need to support. So I'm able to do that where a lot of women aren't able, aren't in that position. So I want to get that out there because it's not a way that, you know, a lot of women can do it where, you know, I've talked to a lot of women that are like, what am I supposed to do? I have two kids. I can't just go all in. And I totally get that. And in those cases, I'm like, keep a part-time job. Keep yeah. like the, at least your, your bare minimum of what you need to make monthly to do that. But I, jumped because I could, because I didn't have any dependents, because I thought $49,000 would go a lot further than it actually did. Yeah, in San Francisco. In San Francisco. I was naive that way. And I was also just willing to do the grind without anything. My first publicist, she listens to this, she will laugh at this. When we were the first Today Show appearance, 
she asked me if I could go buy something that didn't have holes in it. <laughs> like, oh you know, goodness. like all of my clothes I had worn for years and years and years. And in 2015, five years after I started farming, I probably hadn't bought a single new thing. And yeah. I was like, I looked back to what I wore and I didn't because I was like, no, I can't buy something new, like $30 new sweater. No way. Like I, I need that for farm girl. And so I wore a ratty sweater with holes in it on the Today Show for the first, you know, first <laughs> you wore it. I love that. Keeping it real. Yeah. So I was willing to do that and and able to do that. Yeah. And a year and a half into the business, I know your bank account was at $411, right? And I know you are very mindful about how you spend every dollar. So the fact that you even got to that point, I know was big. So tell me what was going on at that moment. And what did you do to get yourself out of that? Because at that point, you know, it just seems like the business could have easily closed down. Yeah, I was on the verge of let's see, because I wasn't going to be that person. I was very, very aware of not wanting to be the person that tried too long. I thought it was a great idea, but I hear so many entrepreneurs are like, it's an amazing idea. It's, you know, I have one girlfriend that I'm just like, you've been trying for as long. You started right after me. It's been almost 11 years. And if you aren't yet at a million dollars, it's telling you something, you know, it's not being received in the way that you think, or it's not the right time or whatever else but it's time to cut your losses and go to something else. So I wanted, you know, that's why I was very clear on my two years or until I ran out of money. And at that moment, I was like, well, maybe people are talking to me and telling me that this idea doesn't have legs. Let's use all the business speak, right? Like it doesn't have <laughs> legs, you know, there's, it's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna work. And so, you know, I was contemplating shutting down. I was very fortunate. This is another thing I just like to be really transparent about. I had a live-in boyfriend at the time who right around that time I'd proposed. And so, you know, I had to go to him and say like, I can't pay my half of rent, you know? And will you pay the full rent for a while? And because we were engaged, it was something I could do where a lot of women won't have that opportunity either. So I just want to call a spade a spade. I was in a position where I didn't have to go live in my car, which I very much could have if it was just me. But I was able to then build it back up. And, you know, I never actually ran out of money. The next week, I remember we had done an event and I was trying to get paid and they were trying to do 90 days. And I was like, can I please get the money now? And I just kept calling them and they sent the check before the 90 day terms that they wanted. And so that helped me bump up the bank account a bit. So it was always like just skating by, by a thread basically. Yeah. (laughs) And, and like you mentioned, you know, the flower business is so tough. I mean, I can't even imagine, I mean, I sell food to support women's hormones and that's like perishable, but not like flowers at all. So I kind of know a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes, but you know, the first year you did 56,000, if I'm looking at the numbers correctly and year two, you were at basically 270,000, right? And this is the year in between the year where you were pretty low in your bank account because you're using all your cash to support the business. Now tell me, how did you really create that word of mouth and the buzz? Because by year three, you were nearing a million dollars. So there's a lot that really happened in those three years with very little money. So tell us more about what really helped you kind of gain that traction and who was involved behind the scenes of doing these flowers? Um, me. <laughs> so I remember I used to like create different names of people and be like, Oh, Jennifer and events would be happy to help you. And Jennifer was me as well. And you know, yes. I'd have like all this, you know, cause I wanted to make it seem like a business, like a, a team of people. Yeah. It was all grassroots marketing as I like to go. Like people don't pound the pavement anymore. And back then we lucked out. We didn't start digital marketing until the year after that, until we got to the 1.9 million from the 920,000. So that was that year and it was great timing. And we just lucked out that we were able to acquire a customer for under a dollar. But the year before that was still completely hitting the ground. It was going to events like you and I talked about, 
going to events every night I would go to meetup.com was a big thing going on at that time. So I would look at all the meetups in the area where I thought there'd be women there, the target demographic would be women. And I would go and I would take flower arrangements to them with little marketing cards that I made myself by learning InDesign. Very, they were beautiful. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) And I would put these little cards out with these arrangements. I would just pretend they ordered them. And I would just walk in with confidence and be like, oh, here's the flowers, put little cards. And the people at the reception desk would be like, thank you. And you know, that's wonderful. And little did they know, they didn't order them. I just went to all the events and put them out on the tables. And then also, in addition to that, I would... Starbucks was a great, just an amazing partner for us. And they weren't even like partners. It was just <laughs> nice stores. <laughs> the managers there would let us. I remember later on, a, they got a new district manager and she put the kibosh on it. I was like, come on. Like, you know, this was so great. So we had stores throughout San Francisco that would let me put little arrangements out on the bar. With oh, sweet. Yeah. So coffee shops was a huge way to get the word out. And I would go back every week and I would count how many cards were taken. And if there were less than 50 taken, 40 or 50 that week, I would go find a different one in the area. Now I'm like, for $20 cost, that was a great... Right? <laughs> That's so different now. But I was like, no, no, no. If only like 25 cards were taken that week, I'm like, no, no, no. I need somewhere where I can get like 100 cards taken that week. And that's how it grew from 276 to 920 was just doing those flower arrangements everywhere with cards. Yeah. And and I think, I believe at the time you were just in San Francisco. So you built a million dollar business word of mouth in San Francisco, just hustling, which is... Yeah. We built a $4.4 million business. We didn't go outside of San Francisco until 2015. So five years. I think we were at 4.4 million um, oh the year gosh. before that. So we were the most saturated, you know, most known florist flower company in San Francisco by the time we were able to move outside of San Francisco. I thought we would be able to do national shipping within two years. That was in my original business plan. And then I realized why nobody had disrupted the industry and done that was because you couldn't afford to ship. We're still subsidizing our shipping by millions of dollars each year. So, And we have a very high shipping rate. So shipping is the barrier to entry for it keeps us kind of safe because if we're subsidizing millions of dollars, most people can't subsidize millions of dollars because they don't have the scale to do that. But it's also just kills you to be like, I'm giving our, the transportation companies all of our profit, you know? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And they have to be also very delicate with your flowers and no delay. So I'm sure there's so much that goes on behind that, which I want to get into. But really quickly, I just realized we didn't talk about what differentiates Farm Girl Flowers from other flower businesses. Like to be able to get to that scale in a few years in one city, like, can you just chat more about it so our audience knows why you guys are so unique? Yeah. So we've changed a lot throughout the years, but our original model, like when I started, when I launched with a very, it's so funny, I look back at our first website and I think we're the perfect example of a minimum viable product to get yes. out there because the picture on the front page wasn't even in focus. It was blurry. I took a picture of a barn and put it as a backdrop. I was like, look at it now. And I was like, how did I not just go take a better picture? You know, like <laughs> I don't understand that. But it was just what we launched with and what we are now is different. But what we launched with was one daily bouquet for $25, which is crazy to me. That was $25 plus $10 for delivery. There was no way to make money doing that. Um, There were smaller arrangements and it was just like, whatever I had that day, it was to eliminate waste, the 40% waste in the industry. I learned a lot from that. I learned that you can't make money at $25. (laughs) There was like 50 things that I didn't take into account financially that you were going to have to pay for, including just insurance and taxes and all those things that I had no idea about. And then people wanted bigger arrangements and they didn't want just one arrangement. They wanted more than one arrangement. So we've grown the company. So it makes us different. I like to think is that they're actually flowers you'd want to send. I didn't like sending flowers to my mom in Indiana. When I would send her flowers, I had to use the national companies and I just felt ripped off. 
and I hated the whole experience. I didn't like the flowers that were sent. You know, I thought it was going to be $50, always ended up being $100, and it looked like it was $10 from the grocery store. What makes us different is our flowers are actually flowers that you won't be embarrassed about, that you'll yeah. like. And the other side too, there's less, fewer, better is our, our motto. And so our competitors have between 150 and 200 arrangements, most of them on available any day on their, their website. And we have usually between 30 and 40 on our website at a given time. So we just have less options and that way we're able to minimize our waste level. So florists, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense when you go into a florist, they have no idea what you're going to want. So you have to buy a little bit of everything. And like you alluded to earlier, flowers are highly perishable. I don't know a single thing that's more perishable than flowers. I, if anybody out there that's listening knows of something, please email me because at least I want to feel better that I do yeah. the worst industry in the entire world. We can't make a mistake. We literally can't make a mistake. When we make a mistake, it can cost us millions of dollars. So we have between three and five days for perishable, the highly perishable inventory. If we over-order and we're ordering, especially for like Mother's Day that's coming up or Valentine's Day, we're ordering six months in advance. Wow. Some farms were custom, you know, working on custom growing programs that are a year in advance. And so we have to project what people are going to want a year, six months to a year before they're actually going to place the order and order it. And if we over order and something happens like COVID, you know, we had to throw away hundreds of thousands of dollars of flowers that were already en route to us when we got shut down on March 16th, like everyone else. And there's nothing we can do. We just have to throw them away. I can't hold them like sweaters and then sell them in June even at highly discounted sale prices in order to make our money back. They've already been in a compost bin for six months already. So it's a hard industry. You can't make mistakes. There's always just as an example, like last Friday, we found out we have 12,000 orders that we can't make in North America for Mother's Day that we need to find other homes for due to mother nature or operational constraints from our partners. So it's always something that's like, oh, well, it's been too warm here. So the peonies popped early. So they're coming on two weeks before you need them and things like that, that just, I had no idea about. <laughs> oh my, are you like sleeping and running all these scenarios? Because, you know, even with my one product without five ingredients, I'm always dealing with something. I can't even imagine you, like my brain would probably always be working. It's crazy. Yeah. That's because I look like a beautiful mind a little bit around here because yeah. I have whiteboards everywhere with contingency yeah. plans on it, you know, yes. everywhere. And like after this podcast, we'll have to do another meeting to figure out like what we're going to ship from this location since we can't get the flowers we thought we were going to and find another crop for it. And we have to find it by next week. So yeah, and get it transported by next week. So it's like things like that all the time. We are like laughing about it now, but it's a lot to handle. And we'll go into COVID in a little bit, but this resiliency aspect, I mean, how do you build that muscle? Is it because you've gone through so many iterations of this and have seen you guys figure it out that you feel a little bit more comfortable? Like, how are you managing that personally? Yeah, I've gotten really good at not overstressing. So you said, figure it out. Like my motto in life, we literally had this written on a wall before we're not there anymore, but everything is figure outable. Like literally that's our motto. Everything is figure outable. Like just <laughs> figure out the problem that's in front of us right now. Don't worry about like, I'm very good at, you know, I, I kind of stress my team out because I want to like talk about like why this happened. I'm like, we just need to stop talking about why yeah. and move on. How are we going to fix it? Like, let's fix this. So I've gotten really good at not worrying about the why and not staying in that place. And then just moving very quickly to like, let's just fix it. Cause there's going to be another thing in 15 minutes. So we better do this now, you know? So, and also compartmentalizing a bit is something that I've worked on just since COVID, especially I felt like it was going to kill me if I didn't like, I needed to separate my personal 
from my work life a little bit better than I had just from a, a mental health sanity standpoint. If all you're doing is worrying about work when you're not at work, you're still at work, you know? So just being able to be like on Friday, it might work really late, but I'm going to be like, okay, Friday, it's 10 PM. I'm going to be done with this. I'm not going to worry about it. Yes, I still need to find homes for 12,000 products. I'm going to worry about that Monday morning. I'm not going to spend Saturday and Sunday and I'm going to actually enjoy some life as well. How do you do that, right? So when you were at COVID, I believe you guys were 10 years in the business, right? That you've been thinking, breathing, everything. I mean, even taking, I mean, it's tough for me to even take like a quote unquote day off, but I enjoy it. I mean, my mind's always thinking. So even if you're not technically working, you're still kind of thinking about the business. It's just like in your the back of your head. So how are you blocking out the time and really focusing on like the present moment and just genuinely not thinking about the business? Yeah, it's really hard. It's definitely a practice you have to be really conscious of. 2020 was the hardest year of my life, personally and professionally. The month before COVID, my ex-husband and I decided to get a divorce. So that was February 8th, the week of Valentine's Day, of course. And then March 16th, we were shut down. So that year was just running. I felt like it was a sprint. It was just a constant sprint and, you know, I just kept kept thinking, and this is so silly, but you know, the things you think of when you're stressed, I just kept thinking of like gym class in high school, when you would sprint the long ways on the track and get to walk the ends. And I'm like, I need the ends. I need to get to the end where I can walk at least for a little bit before I have to sprint the next long way. And there was no ends. There was no place to stop and breathe. And it almost like, I just felt like I was going to die. I literally just felt like, do people die from hard work? Because I think I might die. Like it was just 120 hour weeks back to back to back. I mean, I was driving to Miami to set up a distribution center back and forth from San Francisco because I couldn't fly. I got COVID in the middle of it. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it was something that we're setting up distribution centers via WhatsApp in South America because we couldn't fly there. It was just, it was a lot. It was more than a lot. It was too much. And I thought that was going to be the hardest year, but it turns out last year, this year has actually been harder from a different standpoint of 2020, we, we figured out a new distribution model. We set it all up. We got it going to meet the demand. And then the demand went away once the vaccines were readily available for everyone, because then everybody changed the purchasing behaviors of consumers. Everybody knows in direct to consumer have completely shifted to be travel and entertainment and no longer in the gift side. So you built an infrastructure. We built an infrastructure for a level of business we couldn't support anymore. And so then we needed to right-size the business again, and we needed to run again while we don't have a lot of sales coming in. And so that became more mentally hard. So 2020 was physically hard. 2021 was mentally hard. 2022 continues to be mentally hard. And so it's a practice that I have to do in order to get to the other side, or you literally will just burn out. You will. You'll just like, I feel like if I don't do this for myself, which isn't what I should be doing as a leader, burning out is not fair to my team. They're relying on me to be strong and present for them and to make wise decisions. And you can't do that when you're just completely burnt. Yes. And I think that's really important to talk about. I mean, even for myself, like I'm so used to the grind of working all the time, but I realize when you're running your own business, it's a different grind and you need to be mentally there to make the right decisions. And like you said, show up for your team and be that pleasant person. And it's funny because I'm in the world of health and wellness. I'm like, if I'm not taking care of myself, this is a complete fraud, you know, but it's so important. So I think it's important to talk about because it's not joyful when you're running a business and you're killing yourself and you're not even happy. Like, and actually that brings me to a question before all the personal and professional mishap that has happened with COVID and you leaving your marriage, I believe you said, you know, nine years into the business, you're already beginning to feel burnout and you were questioning, 
Do I continue this? Do I sell the business? Like, tell me what was going on in your mind there, because I think it's a good learning for people who aren't nine years into the business to take away from that. Yeah, nine years into the business. It's so funny because I thought that was the hardest year that we were gonna have because I was burnt out. It was before COVID, though. It was November 2019. It was our nine year anniversary. And I was just really frustrated because I could not figure out a way to make money out of this business. I'm like, I've given nine years now. I pay myself sixty thousand dollars a year. It's not like I'm making so much money. You know, the media wants you to believe that CEOs are all making like so much money and driving their G wagons and you know, <laughs> in their fancy houses. I'm like, I still live in a one bedroom apartment. Nine years in, I pay myself sixty thousand. I didn't even pay myself for five and a half years, and I'm not living the high life. And even though I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money and thought that the public was responding to me and telling me this was a great idea, we we're getting all this press. But was it a good idea? You know, that's where I was at. I was like, maybe this isn't. Maybe there's no way to make money. 1-800-Flowers was doing, you know, under 7% profits. And that's a billion dollar company. And it's the best one in our industry. And I'm like, I couldn't figure out a a path to profitability, basically. I could not figure out a path to any kind of significant profitability. We were running significant profitability. Yeah, we were running like one and a half to 2% at most a year profit. Yeah, net. Yeah. Yeah. And we're cutting it so close that literally there'd be like, oh, great. Now we have a lawsuit, another unplanned expense. Now we have you know, an audit from the state, another one, and now another unplanned expense. And it was just like, one of these is going to take us out. It felt very precarious. It felt not like I was making wise, stable decisions. We weren't in a, a financially healthy place as a company. We, you know, we always were profitable yeah. by like one and a half percent, but barely. And I felt like I was skating by every year. And I'm like, this isn't what I want. I'm tired of it. We'd grown pretty big. Managing people was is not my forte. It's not any CEO's forte. I've never met a single CEO that says, I want to start a company to manage people. <laughs> and yet that's that scale. Yeah. yeah. And Hard. you have 300 team members and most are non-exempt, which is a totally different ball game than exempt team members. So it's just very, very different. There's lawsuits constantly. There's all kinds of things. There's expectations you're never going to meet. There's everyone thinking that you're living this amazing life when you're barely scraping by and paying them more than you're paying yourself, but that's not the the knowledge. So I just was done. I was just like, I'm going to give myself one year, 10 year anniversary. If there's no path to significant profitability, I'm going to try to sell what I can and just be done and move on to something. Take all the learnings from this, take what I can from it. So at least I don't feel like it's a wasted decade of my life and do something else. Go start another company making sweaters or something, you know, so <laughs> yeah. do that, you know, and then COVID happened and it was the hardest year, but I mean, we turned off marketing and we were doing a hundred percent growth without any marketing, except for email. The demand was there because we were in the gifting space and already set up well that way. So we did do profit that year and we changed our whole distribution model and that distribution model changed. It worked in 2020 to do what we need to do to get orders out. But then when the demand went down, we saw it actually didn't work. We set up in places we never should have set up. We only set up there because it's the only place that would allow us to. And we had to fix it. But then when we fixed it last year and this year, well, yeah, last summer when we fixed it, the great thing about that is, yes, we're a smaller business. We did that intentionally to mitigate risk. The risks were so high last year. However, we also became a profitable company. The new distribution models and really deep diving into what was going to work and changing who we were fundamentally, our distribution, all of that. It wasn't exactly who I wanted to be as a company. You know, it made us do things differently and in ways that I never thought I would want to do. Which is going international 
we did that before and that saved us. I, I love that part, but just diversifying our distribution, sure. not owning it all. We used to own all of it and I could really control, like be the control freak about quality. And you know, I came up with this idea of like a hybrid model where we can still have high quality designer bouquets, but those are made in ones that we own, but that's a small percentage of what we do overall and having a mix. It is so much smarter. All of our eggs aren't in one basket. So when we get shut down with COVID and we literally have to furlough 191 of 197 team members and we have nowhere else to make bouquets, that won't happen again because we have so many locations. Now, we don't own them all. And so that control is not who I wanted to be as a company. You know, it definitely have to like lessen the reins on the quality a bit, make it a little bit more generic. And miraculously, we have 35% gross margins now. We've never had that That's in awesome. yes. the history of the company in flowers, which is kind of unheard of. And so that nine years, which is crazy that like through COVID, we've become a better company. But through COVID, we became a better company because we had to and we had to pivot. We've had three major pivots since COVID. And they've been hard, but they've just made us better. Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious, and I've heard you talk about this, you know, when you were meeting investors looking to raise money, you always said, you know, I need the money to scale and figure out the back end of everything. I mean, did you know, obviously, when COVID hit, you guys kind of opted into changing the business model, but did you know that was the right path earlier? But in your head, you were like, I don't know if I'm ready to put forth that much effort and capital to just change everything when things are going pretty good for now. Yeah. Yeah. I think COVID, one of the great things it did was just, I basically had nothing to lose. When I sat on my couch on March 16th, crying my eyes out, like, oh my gosh, I just worked 10 years for nothing. I fought in my divorce to keep my company. I gave everything else, but I'm like, I want my company. And I'm sitting in this little one bedroom apartment, like, cool. Now my company is not worth anything either. Cool. Good, good, good call, Christina. Good, good job. You know, and I was feeling pretty sorry for myself for that time. And the great thing was I had nothing to lose. I was like, I'm probably going out of business. We're going out of business probably. So let's just go down fighting. Let's try all of those ideas that I thought we would try with capital if we were able to raise capital. And so we did that. And some of them worked and some didn't, just like everything. And so this last year, you know, we right-sized the company, we shut down the ones that weren't working and we leaned into what was working. And then miraculously, we ended up at the side where we actually have margin for the first time. Oh my God. You know, it's so crazy because it reminds me, I had another guest on the podcast, Vicky Sai. She's a founder of Tatcha. Her company got bought and it was like the last year she was going to be the CEO. And she wasn't too happy about that, but she's like, okay, they know what they're doing. It's time for me to kind of step back. And she said, I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be here next year. Let me just do everything. And she said, I killed it. We've never grown that much. So just to hear the similarities with you, just it's like, how do we hack that mindset of let's just go and who cares? I mean, it's tough to do when you're not in a crisis situation, but there's something interesting there. So it's cool to see that you guys have gone through and you are profitable. And looking back now, did you ever think you'd be in this position like so kind of quickly? (laughs) I mean, everything in this whole, it's been like a roller coaster for the last like 11 and a half years now, but every day I still get to learn. And I think that's really important too. If I ever got to a place, I would say this where I just became cyclical and I wasn't learning anymore, then that's the time for me to get out. In previous jobs, I had that, you know, I worked at Stanford before that and I should have left five years before I did because mm. it was just a cycle. And I'm like, you know, I'm not learning anything. I'm like, what was I doing there? You know? So I never want to do that. And I never want anybody on our team to do that too. And I mean, they probably want a little bit more stability and like less pivots, you know, yeah. my team would probably be really excited to be like, can we have 12 months with no changes? Just once, one year, <laughs> like no big major pivots. We're not going to like okay, now we're going to do international. Now we're going to do diversified distribution. Now we're going to do, you know, all these things. 
But everybody on my team is growing and learning as they go, including myself. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to circle back a little bit. We briefly touched upon throughout the interview, you know, your experience with fundraising and how you got over 101 no's. And one thing that you mentioned that you said you really finally felt freedom is when you realize funding doesn't equal success. I want to talk and underscore this a little bit because I still think there are some people that think they need a fundraise and that's the only way to be successful. But to your point, there actually are some businesses that you can launch without significant funding. So I'd love to just hear when you realize that funding doesn't equal success and just how much of freedom you felt from that. Yes. I think if I can be remembered for one thing, if people listening to this remembers one thing that we talk about, this would be the thing. Most don't even realize that most of the companies in this country are unfunded. Like we only read about, you know, all of us that want to be entrepreneurs, we only read about, you know, an Inc. and Entrepreneur and Fast Company and Forbes and, you know, all the magazines that we all read, right? We only read about the sexy, cool, very funded, overly funded companies, right? And that becomes like our mindset of success, right? We're like, okay, every networking event I would go to, and this probably happens to everyone else listening to, you know, the first, second or third question asked, well, I guess networking events you go to outside of COVID. So people probably aren't in them right now, but you know, yeah. first questions people ask are like, who invested? It's not even enough that you got investment, but who invested? Is it like the forerunner, the trues, the like big names? And you know, if you're in direct to consumer and stuff, like, are you worthy enough to get the big names to invest in you. And if you're not, if you say like, oh, I'm bootstrapped, it's like a dirty word. I think it's starting to get some credibility, but it like people would look over my shoulder for someone more interesting to talk to even. And I'm just like, why aren't we celebrating that? You know, I own all of my company, <laughs> you know, like have a employee pool, but me and my employees own the whole company. So that pie can be much smaller at an exit people don't talk about the right things because those aren't the ones that people are writing about. And I think we all need to understand, especially women and women of color, especially, we have less than a 2% chance of getting <laughs> funded. And if a woman of color, you have less than a 1% chance. So if you're spending 30 to 40% minimum of your time trying to get investment, what could you be doing with that time instead? That's what it boiled down to me. Instead of spending 30 to 40% of my time for several years, which I did, where would we be now? We would be in a much better place, much, much better place. You know, we're already in a decent place, but we'd be way bigger if I could have that time back to just keep doing it the way that we were doing. Keep investing your profits into the company, keep enough that you feel secure and just reinvest it year over year. And it's a longer track. I think we all want instant gratification. So we want like a three to five year exit. And you might not have that if you're bootstrapped. You probably won't if you want a big number, right? Like I want a hundred million or more at the exit, right? So I'm going for that. And I'm willing to put in the 15 years to get there. That's worth it to me. And so I think we need to get out of this mindset that success equals funding. It was the most freeing moment that I've had since starting Farm Girl when I was just trying so hard. I'd go to these pitch meetings and investor meetings and the 104 no's I got weren't just one meeting. There were ones that I actually talked to several times. I got a lot more no's and rejections if I just count all of the ones that just gave me the form letter back. But they were all multiple meetings where I went and I tried to, I felt like I was on a bad date where you're just like, please like me, please like me, you know? And like, they never did like me and you just feel rejected. And what I learned was they're not the smartest people in the room. I think because I had this imposter syndrome people talk about, I really don't love that phrase, but it's really true. When you get to the heart of it, when you don't feel like you deserve what you're going in to get, 
you go in knowing they're going to be looking for someone to college education. They're going to be looking for someone with way more pedigree than I have. And you're already coming from a place of a deficit, basically, when you go in. And then you're just like, oh, you want to see this report 14 different ways? Sure, no problem. I've got nothing else to do. Let me go spend 40 hours getting all these reports to you slightly different than I have them already, but just to, to meet your needs. Okay, let me do that. And then they'll be like, ah, well, you know, we can't wrap our heads around, you know, and then they want you to like explain 50 million more ways why you're going to do that. And then they want to tell you what you should be doing instead and how you should be going for like on-demand delivery and things like that. And so you go back and you try to do a new financial model, 14 different ways to figure out a way that you can do on-demand delivery without losing your shirt. And then you come back and say like, oh, I, I just couldn't do it. Could you guys help me since you have a lot of analysts there? And like, oh no, you know, if you can figure this out, then we might invest in you. True stories. These are things that happen. And you just spin your wheels over and over again. And when I sat there and it was my 101th no. And that was the meeting where I was just like, I'm done. I'm literally done. I cried in the meeting. I've never done this before. I'm not like, this is gonna make me sound very weak and like, very, not that crying is weak, but this, you don't want to cry in a pitch. You don't want to cry in <laughs> investor meetings, especially as a woman, because you do get labeled. I cried because I was so mad. I was so mad. I flew across the country the day before we had a national commercial with Capital One filming. I shouldn't have been going there right before. I should have been getting ready for this commercial. I was sicker than a dog. I was on so much Dayquil going into this meeting. They ran me through the gamut of not having a screen. They let me know the the night before when I landed there that they weren't going to have a screen in the room that we were in. So I needed to bring, you know, copies. So I had to get up at six in the morning, find a Kinko's to go make copies of this pitch, all these things. I went there. I go and I pitch. Seven minutes into the pitch, they tell me, oh, we actually don't think that this is for us. You're looking for more regional companies. The fact that you want to be so big isn't really what we're looking for. We're looking for more like C's candy, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, you had my pitch. I already did two phone calls with you guys. Like you bring in this advisor. And then I was so angry and so hopped up on DayQuil that I was just like, (laughs) done. I was like, I'm talking to a bunch of guys that think they know so much better than me. They didn't even respect me enough to look at my deck before I had to fly on my own dime across the country to go pitch to them. And then in seven minutes, they told me no. And now I have to go back to the airport, try to get an earlier flight, go back to try to get ready for this commercial thing. And I was just like, what am I doing to myself? These people are not smarter than me. They're not. I need to get over it. Realize that, look, I've been doing this at that point. I've been doing it for like eight years. I know what I'm doing. And if they can't see that, then that's their loss. And I'm done. I'm just done. I'm just going to go build this on my own. I'm going to have my pretty woman moment. I'm going to send them all a picture of my exit check in a blue and white polka dot dress And I'm going to say, you know, you work on commission, right? Big mistake, huge mistake. Yes. Oh my gosh. I I have so much I want to talk about there. One thing, just looking at your journey, whether it's fundraising, building the business, what are three things you want to tell women entrepreneurs, whether it's advice, just like from your own experience and people that you mentor right now, because I feel like there's so many learnings that you personally had over the past 10 years. The biggest one I think is, you know, everyone says double what you think that you're going to spend. I kind of look at it differently. Spend as little as you can. Don't listen to everybody else. It's like, you know, you have to spend money to make money. So really looking at your budget as what can I cut out of it instead of add to it? And that might mean that you have to work a little bit harder yourself or other people like pounding the pavement to do marketing like we did with the coffee shops, but really spend as little as you can live below your means, just like the millionaire next door book teaches you all those things. That has been the secret to our success in not running out of money. Like really just 
being as scrappy as you can and not just doing things because a book tells you or not using agencies for everything, doing it yourself at the start, like literally do it yourself, do everything yourself. And it's also going to teach you every area of the business, which is invaluable. So don't throw money at other people to do your work to start, do it yourself and live as below your means as you possibly can. Understanding that bootstrapping is a badge of honor and the longer you can hold on to your equity in your business, the better. I mean, everybody knows the earliest rounds are the most expensive. So I know many people that don't own more than a couple percent of their business and they're working their butts off. And that makes me sad for them because the investors aren't working that hard. You are. And so hold on to as much equity as you can in your business for as long as you can. And also understand that if you can't get funding, that doesn't mean you can't be successful. And it doesn't mean that you're not worthy. And I think as women, we feel that often. We feel like we're not worthy if other people don't see it in us. And really just hold on to the fact that living well is the best revenge. And you can do it on your own. And then third, I would say, go for it. I think, like I said earlier, for 10 years, I wanted to start a business and I didn't. I had a a job that paid six figures. I didn't grow up with a lot. But I would say, like, I wish I would have started sooner. There were a lot of benefits to the learnings I had in, in waiting, but really going for it and in a way that you can, you know, whether you have to keep a part-time job while you, you try this, but have realistic expectations for yourself and the outcome. So don't keep doing it for a decade if it's not growing. It should even grow without marketing. And, and I hear a lot of people say, it's because I don't have enough marketing dollars to spend. And I'm like, but I got to a million dollars with zero marketing dollars. So it's not just how much you spend. It's also what people want and what the environment is telling you. Yeah, no, that's all all so many gems. And like you even said, you know, there'll never be a right time to start. Like if you can just start the process on the side and like you have an MVP to prove it out, like even our first website photo, it, I mean, I was still embarrassed and this wasn't long ago. It was like six months ago. It was blurry and I'm like, oh shit, but I don't want to not launch. And I was like, I want to learn as much as I can. So I still went with it and it was hard, but I was like, forget about it. I know our product is great and it works and we'll update that. So I think proving out the concept as cheaply as you can, you know, and focusing on product, which you did as well, is super key. And then you slowly pivot and then you grow along the way. But you're right, there's never a right time. And I think a lot of people are waiting for that opportunity. But like you said, even if you're trying to figure out your passion project or your business on the side, like that's still worth it. It doesn't mean to quit your job and go all in if you can't do that. But I think that's really important advice and one we often hear with so many of the women on the podcast. And, you know, I want to end on what's next for Farm Girl. I know you have massive ambitions. Like, tell us more because I can't wait. I mean, I'm cheering you on for the past few years, but I can't wait to see where you guys continue to grow and evolve. Thank you. Yes, I would love to get into more non-perishable items. So we're working on that right now. Kind of a sister brand to Farm Girl that we're hoping to launch by next spring at the latest. So I'm excited for that things that can sit on someone's porch for a couple hours in the sun and not die. (laughs) There's that. And then there's also a lot of, you know, we're still leaning into our new distribution model. And so really getting honed in on that and getting it perfect and some other distribution channels as well that might be closer to home for people. We're looking at and trying to, to work on some really exciting things there as well. Hoping to launch a lot this fall or early next spring of some new things. I'm excited. Yes. And then what's the revenue goal? I know I've heard different things for you, Mm -hmm. but like, how are you thinking about the business and what your revenue potential and goals you have in your mind? Yeah. I mean, definitely at least a hundred million in the next few years. We're hoping to get there in the next couple of years. 
but with intention, with margin. So we could have gotten there way quicker, but we slowed down intentionally. And so we're really looking at getting, I would love to get to two to 300 million is the the end goal would be amazing, but I'm going to really celebrate when we get to a hundred million with a big net margin instead of, you know, we could have been there already with no margin. And so we're doing it in a different, very intentional way. Oh, I'm so excited. And Christina, are you paying yourself a little bit more now with that you have margin? Like, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I don't live in a one bedroom. Now I have a couple bedrooms, which is great. I mean, a little yeah. bit more space, which is good. So yeah, yeah, definitely. But you know, I'm still proud that, you know, if I need to put it all back in the farm world, something else happens, yeah. I can. Yeah, totally, totally. No, it's one thing that I've learned quite a bit. I mean, so many of the women on the podcast, it's like they didn't pay themselves significantly for a long time. And and I feel very silly, but I didn't know that. Like I was going to start a business and I've always used to be, you know, similar to you, getting paid quite a bit. I was like, wow, some women were not getting paid until eight years in. That didn't mean their business wasn't doing well. They had multi-million dollar businesses. So I think having those expectations is important. And now that I'm in it, it's like, I'd rather pay for someone to come help us than pay myself. Or So I can see the way you've kind of thought about the business over the years. But I do think pay yourself is important and more so than I used to think. Because when we got shut down March 16th and I sat there on the couch crying, I'm like, I just worked for a decade. I've never paid myself more than 60,000 a year. And I'm going to walk away with nothing. I don't want that to be my story that I had to walk away with nothing because I didn't value my time enough, mm, you know? So yes. when you can pay yourself and pay yourself well, when you can, and when you can't, then you can turn it off because you've saved enough that it's okay. You know, yeah. so yeah. take distributions when you can pay yourself yeah. well, when you can, and don't feel guilty about it, which is still something I struggle yes. with. I feel guilty all the time when I'm like, Oh, I'm increasing my pay a little bit. I'm like, we can right now. Why would I not? Why would I not? So it's I can true. decide to put that back in later if I want to self-fund now, you know, a home line or something like that, I can. So it'll it'll put you in a better position where you're not scared to, which is great. Yeah. And you make an interesting point, just like in terms of all of us valuing our time. And I think that's just a whole nother thing that I'm learning, like even in terms of should you be hiring someone to be doing that kind of work? Should you be paying yourself like you had mentioned? I mean, I think valuing yourself is so important. And sometimes you're just in the thick of it. And listen, early businesses, you got to be in the thick of it doing everything. So I'm not discounting that. But it is something that it's just good to kind of keep in mind, like you are also adding so much value to a business. And like, how can you just always remember that and bring in great people to support you through that journey. But Christina, this was so awesome. It was such a joy to have you on. Thank you. I'm so excited for everything you're building. And I can't wait for our audience to learn more about you and everything else that you guys are continuing to bring over the next year. So thank you again for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.